Today, as we reason through the Bible, we're in Esther chapter 2, where we've met a series of sinful people in questionable circumstances, but we see God's hand working through that. One of our questions today that we're going to pose as we reason through the Bible is, can God use situations that are questionable morally to accomplish His will? And if you think about it, that's a very profound question or at least a difficult one for those of us that have been trained to kind of look for God's righteousness. To our listeners, if you have your copy of the Word of God, open it to the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 2, because we have here the person of Esther who has been put into a very questionable circumstance. She's in a pagan king's harem, and she's going to appear before this king to decide whether she's going to become queen or not. Most of the women in the harem are used as a mere sexual purposes. So it's a very lustful, pagan, debauched system run by pagan lost people that have nothing to do with the Word of God. And on top of that, even our Jewish characters are failing to bring out and show the light of God to these pagan people. There's a lot of questionable circumstances all the way around, but yet we see the hand of God working through this all the way through. So today, Steve, we're going to wrestle with some very difficult questions about whether God can use situations that are questionable morally to accomplish his purposes. This is another book that we see here, and we mentioned it during our introduction. We don't see God's name used here directly. We don't see them praying directly to God, but we do see God still working through all of these situations to bring about something that's for his glory and for the protection of his people, the Jewish people. And as you mentioned, the entire book of Esther is one of the few books in the Bible that never mentions God nor the name of God. But yet we see God's hand of providence going through all of this. As we study these circumstances that God's working through, we learn things about the nature of God. We learn here that God uses pagan people with pagan motivations to accomplish his will and his purpose. Think about that. He's using pagan people with pagan motivations to accomplish his purpose. And that's not really a surprise. We learn this not just in Esther, but think of it, Steve. When Israel disobeyed, who did he use to take them into captivity? He used the pagan nation of Babylon to take them into captivity. Babylon was a very evil people, but yet God was using them for his purposes to punish his own children and take them into captivity and teach them a lesson. So we have God using pagan people, pagan circumstances to accomplish his will. We learned that here in Esther as well. We also see God using his own children, his own weak children, who are not following his commands to accomplish his will and purpose. And Steve, I find that even more fascinating. God and Esther is working through his own people, but none of them are obeying him. They're intentionally hiding the fact that they're followers of God, and they couldn't have been openly following things like the dietary commands, or else people would have known they're Jewish. 
So these people are undercover, hiding the fact that they're followers of the one true God, yet God is working through them anyway. And I find that to be very fascinating. God protected his people. Think of this. God protected his people, even though they were not living according to his standards. Now, we don't want to teach that as a, okay, you can go live any way you want, because Paul deals with that over in the book of Romans. Should we sin that grace may abound? Well, heaven forbid. We should always try to follow God, because as we've taught, Steve, in every book we've taught, there's consequences for sin. But yet we do see here fallible people just like us that God is still using them. That gives us great hope. Here's the question. Just to wrestle with this question, because it is a legitimate question, Steve, can God use situations that are questionable morally to accomplish his purpose? And let me turn the screws on that question just a little more. What we're going to see here in this next section, Esther has been put into this harem. Queen Vashti is gone. They've collected these women as a harem. The job of the women is to go have sex with the king for a night to see whether he likes them enough to make them queen. That's the excuse. But what he's really doing is just satisfying his own fleshly lust. So as we're going to see, yes, God providentially uses Esther. She gets chosen as queen. Meanwhile, she doesn't know that in advance. She's put into a situation where she's really just being used as one in a long string of one night stands for this king. Can God use situations that are questionable morally or even flat out sinful to accomplish his will and his purpose? Let me answer that this way by quoting from Romans. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And people want to stop there and use that quote and, and just stop at that point. But when you go through the rest of it, which is important, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We do see God take situations for people that find themselves have done something maybe in the past that is immoral or is something that's questionable. But if there are people that love God, that he will take those situations and he'll work them to his good. In this particular situation, we don't see Mordecai or Esther specifically taking and doing the things of worshiping Yahweh, but we see that they do call themselves Jews ultimately, and we do see that Mordecai is giving her advice, and he's done some things according to the Mosaic Law. He's taken her in as his own daughter because his brother has died and passed away. So I think the short answer to your question is, is that yes, God can take and use those situations for his good and for his glory, mainly because he wants to. And it's for people really in the New Testament, for sure, it's for people that are called to his purposes, for those people that worship him and that believe in him. I think in this situation, he's going to take their actions because he's going to preserve the Jewish people for his purpose later. You know, the ultimate purpose for the Jewish people was to bring about the Messiah, the Savior. Well, here it is many centuries before that, and he's preserving them so that this plan of salvation can still come about. 
I think that we have oftentimes too small of a view of God. We, we put God in a box and we try to say that we've we've understood him and his motivations all the time. And I, I, I think in a lot of cases, we don't think like God does. If we look at circumstances throughout the Bible, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over in the book of Daniel commanded to worship an idol. They say, no, we will not. The king throws them into a fiery furnace. It just so happens God protects them and they don't die. We have over in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we have people that were following God, doing what he was supposed to, yet they're killed. We have Stephen, we have James, who are both killed in the book of Acts for doing no more nor less than telling the world about Jesus Christ. Nothing in there says they sinned. They were just doing the will of God. And in Daniel, they're saved. And in Acts, they're not. Both of them were in the will of God. In Esther, we have people here in Esther that, that could have done like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, King, you've chosen me. I'm not supposed to marry a, a non-Jew. I will not. She could have, but she didn't. Now, we don't know inside of her head exactly why, but we know, again, we know God's using her because that's the book. We've read the end of the book, and the book says he's using Esther. So the answer to the question, can God use questionable circumstances or even sinful circumstances to accomplish his purpose? The answer is a most assuredly yes, because that is the book of Esther. We have hope in our lives because, I don't know about you, Steve, but I fall down and I find myself sinning sometimes. And it's a good thing that I can repent and God can still use me. Now, moving on, we have this man, Haggai, who is the head of the harem. And it just so happens, there's that phrase again, just so happens that he likes her. It says that in verse nine. And in verse 15, what does it say? It says, since Haggai liked Esther, he told her what to take with her when she went to see the king. So Haggai knew what the king wanted and what he's interested in. He gives her advice and he would have known what the king would have appreciated and what the king likes. So Esther just so happens gets the inside track. Well, is it just so happens or is this God's hand of providence again? I think it's God's hand of providence. And as we mentioned in the last session, Esther is listening to these two people and she's taking their advice as to what to do. And I think that's a lesson for our young people. At least listen to what the other people are telling you. Older people and wiser people are telling you. Find out what they're saying because what they're saying might be done for a purpose. Esther is listening to both Mordecai and Haggai in these situations. In Malachi 4.6, it says that God can turn the hearts of people, can turn the hearts of people. That's what he's doing here with this man, Haggai. He turned his heart to like Esther. And he's, as we're going to see in, in coming verses, he, God turns the heart of the king to like Esther because he's putting his person in a circumstance, in a position to save his people. To summarize this piece, verse 12, the woman would spend this year grooming and making themselves beautiful. Verse 13, the woman would take things with them. Haggai says, take these things. The king will like that. Notice this, Steve. They're focused on beauty. There's nothing in here about developing their morals. There's nothing in here about developing their character. There's nothing in here about developing their mental capabilities. 
It's purely physical beauty. What is our society focused increasingly on and what do we hold up as valuable? Yeah, beauty for sure, because humans are visual and especially men. Men are visual and they see beauty and they're attracted to that. Unfortunately, a lot of women fall into that trap and that being beautiful is a certain way to look and they leave out the beauty of their personality. They leave out the beauty of who they are. They fall into the trap of, I just need to make myself beautiful in a visual way in order to attract another person, another man. I submit that a true man, one that you would want to marry, is looking for something more than just physical beauty. And many times they're looking for something other than physical beauty. They're looking for the person inside who they are, what type of morals they have, whether or not they're a Christian, especially if it's a Christian man. Those are the things that are found attractive to a true man of somebody that you might want to marry, not just the physical way that you look. Most definitely. Godly people are interested in godly things. Christians will look for character and internal dedication to the Lord, things like that. The pagan world here in Esther is only focused on physical beauty because all they're thinking about is physical lust. That's the situation we have, and that's where Esther is thrown into. Steve, the next verse, if we could start at verse 17 and read down through verse 20. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Verse 17 tells us that the king loved Esther more than all the women. Now, this again is, as we said, like in Malachi, God is turning the heart of the king for his providential purposes. With this, he, he marries Esther and he is marrying someone here that is not Persian. There's a question that has come up and we'll deal with this briefly in the Greek historian Herodotus states that these Medo-Persian kings traditionally only married women from a specific set of seven families that were all sort of upper crust families. It does indeed say that in Herodotus. What the critics don't point out, Herodotus also says that Ahasuerus' father, Darius, married a queen that was not from those families. So it seems that the Medo-Persian kings didn't always follow the culture here. It also seems that Mordecai may have known this, which is why he may have advised Esther, don't tell him, because again, hand providential hand of God moving Esther into a position. If the king knew she was Jewish, he might not have married her. Anyway, on with our story here. Esther still shows to be historically accurate, and we have her chosen by this king. The king's heart is turned by the Lord God to like her. Here's a question, Steve. Why did Esther win? Is it because she's most beautiful? Well, okay, possibly. What's the other reason? Providential hand of God. 
providential hand of God. That's why she won. God needed her in that position. So that's why she won. It's also true that the king chose her. And those two things are not in conflict. No, they're not. And in verse 15, it says, And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. That found favor, we see that all throughout Scripture. Usually it's talking about where a person is found in favor as related to God. So we see that type of language that it could be providential. She found favor in the eyes of all who saw her because God's providential guidance was on them in order to put her in that position where she was going to be able to save all of her people. The providential hand of God is at play. He needed Esther in that position as queen, and he moves all these circumstances that we've seen up this far into the book just so he can get his person in this role at this point in time, which is prior to the problem showing up, which comes up in the future of the book here. A little bit about God here, because this really tells us kind of the main thing of the story is Esther's been moved into the position of queen. God is not the author of anyone's sin, nor does he violate human nature. He doesn't go against, we're, we're not machines that are, that are used by God, but he does work through us. He does motivate us in certain ways. He leads his people. He uses these pagan people, turns their hearts. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says that God turns a king's heart wherever he, God, wishes. So what we have here, it is both true that God controls these circumstances and will shape and turn men's hearts, but he does it through the free will action of a human without violating the nature of a human being to make free will choices. Now, don't ask me how that works. I'm just saying that's what the Bible teaches because it's everywhere in Scripture and it's all over. We can focus on one or the other. Yes, God's sovereign, but it's also true that this man, Haggai, if you were to ask him, he would just say, I like her. She's the most beautiful. He asked the king, she's the most beautiful. I like her. So God's providence is at work here on both sides of this equation. Can we take comfort in knowing that God is in control of the circumstances? Because the circumstances are going to get even scarier than they are now. Can we take comfort in God being in control of circumstances? We absolutely can. And I can speak of that from experience. And I'm sure that you can speak of that from experience as well. There are things that have happened in my life that people have moved and made decisions that affected me in a positive way that can only be explained through God working through those people. One of them with me was at a time whenever I had changed jobs out of because I was forced to change jobs and Tina and I, we were at a, a low point as far as monetary income. We were really living from paycheck to paycheck, and my pay had been cut way lower than what I had been paid before. And this gentleman contacted me about a job, and when I asked him about it, he says, well, let me look here. He goes, I saw that you were in the grocery business. This job has to do with inventory control. I have a brother-in-law who's in the grocery business, I know that that inventory control is a big deal. So I thought that you would be a great fit for this. That was one way. Another way was whenever I was going for a promotion in that company, I went through the interview process and there was a lady that had influence with the hiring manager. She worked for the hiring manager, 
but she had an influence with him. And he came to her and he said, I'm kind of at a quandary here between these two candidates. I was one of them. Which one do you think would be? And she said, you need to take Steve. He has three young children and he needs to provide for his family. And she was a Christian lady. Those are two instances, just two out of, I could go on and on, that where God, I believe, worked on these people's heart to make a decision. One was to contact me that set me on one course. Another one was to recommend me to continue that course of my life that helped not only me, but my family in provision and providing for them. And it helps bolster my faith when you see those things working, when you see God working in other people's lives on something that helps you. Right after I was saved, God providentially helped me by helping me lose my job. And uh, I, I say that with a smile because it was really a faith building exercise. I did lose my job right after I became a Christian. And I spent three years trying to find a good steady job and I couldn't. Over and over again, I would, all my opportunities, all, all everything I knew to do, couldn't find work. And just about the point I was ready to give up, somebody would call me out of the blue, just right out of the blue. I hadn't looked for, hadn't talked to, didn't know I was looking for work. They'd call me and offer me a job and I would make just enough money to kind of get even again. And then that would go away. And that happened several cycles over that three year period. And I was quite poor and I learned to depend on the Lord God. So he providentially moved circumstances in my life. He providentially moved circumstances in your life. And I submit the Christians in our, in our listening audience, will God providentially move his circumstances in your life as well. And if you're a true follower of God, you will see God's hand in these circumstances. You will learn to see maybe God's moving something here. This may be very painful to me in a physical circumstance, but it could be a God thing. And a lesson out of that is, is that if God is touching you to move in somebody else's life, do it. Don't hesitate. Don't question it. Go ahead and take action upon it because you can be used that way by God in order to providentially help them. Christians should be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to do and go where God would have us to go. We should be sensitive to these things. Now, in verse 20, it says, Esther does what Mordecai asked of her. So she was uh, very good because he was her guardian and she's following his advice. She was respectful to Mordecai and honored him as she, as she, she was, again, 10 commandments, honor thy father and mother. Esther showed a very godly spirit so we can lift her up as a good example in that regard. Christians today should honor those who have raised us and mentored us. That's what Esther is doing here in verse 20. Verse 19, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, in general, Steve, what does it mean to sit in the gate as a general rule in the Old Testament? That was where all the commerce went in and through that gate. We see through scripture and our other studies of our other books, it's where the elders sat. It's where court trials were held of people when the cities of refuge it's where all the activity was. We see Mordecai there outside that city gate, and he's there with people that make decisions. He's there with people that can give him information. It's the center of everything that's going on within that city of Susa. 
sitting at the gate, as you said, is is that's where all the key things happen. It could be that this means that he's in a posi- official position of like a local judge. It, we don't know for sure, but sitting in the gate is usually phrased as somebody that has the position of a judge, usually an elder man, a wiser person that had demonstrated that they're very level-headed and logical and fair to people were given the position of a judge. And the group of these men would sit in the gate because that's where all the people were and that's where the decisions were made. Remember in Ruth, where did the man go to work out the agreement about Ruth. It was at the city gate. Right. So when it says he said at the gate, at the very least, it means he's there in a position of prominence. And it just so happens that he's in the right spot at just the right time to overhear just the right couple of people with this plot that we're going to read about in the next few verses here. So starting at verse 21, it says this, In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. This little event becomes one of the key events in a long series of key events, but it is a critical one because Mordecai is sitting at the gate. He has a position of respect here. It's where a lot of people are, and he overhears these two turn out to be traitors. These are people within the king's business that are plotting to assassinate the king. Mordecai just so happens to be right in the right spot where he overhears these people. Did he just by chance happen to overhear these people, Steve? I don't think so. When we look at the remaining story and there in that account, it says there that he went and told Queen Esther So now he's giving her information. She's the queen because she has the king's ear. She tells the king on behalf of Mordecai, which later on gives Mordecai more credibility with the king as to what information he has to give to the king even later on. This event becomes very critical later in the story when the king reads about this. If you notice here, they didn't reward Mordecai. He he uncovered a plot, an assassination plot, and it gets recorded in the records. And the king's going to discover this again later, but it's not rewarded. That becomes a critical bit of advice. These people here in this verse, these, these two traitors, it says they were hung on a gallows. Well, the word for gallows there in the original Hebrew literally means tree. They were hung on a tree. It's quite possible, Steve, this means they were impaled on a stake. These people would have been, at a minimum, killed and executed in a very brutal way and put in a very prominent place, probably outside the gate where many people would be coming. Because this was a horrible sight to see as you're coming in a gate. If you're at all interested in challenging the king, and the first thing you see when you come into the city is two people impaled on a stake outside the city gate, it might give you pause to challenge the king ever again. Yeah, because the question that you ask when you see these two people, you ask to say, what did they do wrong? 
And the answer is they plotted treason against the king. That sends a very strong message that, okay, I make sure that I don't want to do that because I don't want to end up impaled on a stake myself. So where's our summary of our story here at the end of chapter two? We have our Queen Esther, who's now queen, chosen by the king just by chance. Just so happens that the king liked her. And it just so happens that Esther was so beautiful that he chose her. We also have just so happens that Haggai liked her enough to kind of give her the inside track so that he chose her. And it just so happens that Mordecai was wise enough to be in a position of prominence sitting at the gate. And it just so happens that he overhears these two people that are plotting to kill the king. And it just so happens that the royal officials fail to reward him. All these things just happening by chance. That should be what was she written as a subtitle of the book of Esther. It just so happens. <laughs> well, and nothing in this book just so happens because we see God's divine hand of providence moving through all these circumstances. God is moving all the pieces so that his person is going to be in just the right place at just the right time. And we can take confidence in this because as we're going to reason through the Bible next time, we're going to see that there's a very dire, drastic, terrible circumstance that's going to face the Jewish people. And Esther is in a position to save them. We have here God moving his person in to have a solution before the problem ever occurs. And we can take confidence in that. I hope you're back with us next time as we reason through the Bible. Thank you for watching and listening. May God bless you.